Let us now turn to our passage for today, Psalm chapter 44, verse 1 to 26. Again, the passage is Psalm 44, 1 to 26, and the title of the sermon is The Mystery of Suffering. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow I, do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision of and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God or spread our, our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Good morning. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today on suffering. And we're looking at this topic in part because even though it is one of the most common experiences on this planet, it's not one that we're very well prepared to deal with. Everyone suffers. Sometimes you do that in really sharp, painful ways, sometimes less painfully, but no one is exempt. Every human being who has ever lived knows firsthand what it is to suffer and you would think, I, I, I would think, that since suffering touches literally everyone and has done so as long as there's been a human race, you would think that by this time we'd have developed some fairly sophisticated tools for dealing with it, tools that were really effective. But if you study the religions and the philosophies of this world and you ask, what do I do with suffering? How do I handle it? What you discover is that the answers that are out there are not super helpful, which only what does what? It compounds your suffering, because not only are you facing something that hurts, something that you didn't like, something that you don't want, but then you're given an answer that doesn't work. It doesn't give you a good way of understanding why you're suffering, doesn't help you understand what you should do about it, which then takes a bad situation and complicates it, adds layers of frustration, layers of hopelessness, and gives you something else to deal with. It's exactly like when Job's friends came to him after he lost everything in life. He lost his possessions, he lost his family, he lost his health, and his friends come to him, 
He's sitting there in absolute misery on an ash heap. He's scratching his sores, trying to get some relief. And they start arguing with him over and over and over, telling him that this is all your fault when it wasn't. They had an answer. It was a carefully thought out answer for why people suffer and what you need to do when you suffer. And they could not have been more wrong, which only added to Job's suffering. Unfortunately, when you study religions and philosophies, including the philosophies behind the modern secularism of our age, you find more of the same. Carefully thought out reasons for why people suffer and what to do about it, but reasons that are not robust enough or accurate enough to be helpful. And what I started to suggest last week is that while suffering is never easy, that is why we call it suffering, that while suffering is never easy, God does give us ways of thinking about it, ways of responding to it that are helpful. He never promises that his way of addressing suffering will make it all go away. You know this, sometimes depending on the kinds of things that you're going through, you realize that it's not going to go away. But God's way of addressing suffering doesn't make it worse. And it does give you resources, real practical help for dealing with it. And so last week, we looked at all the different ways that suffering can come to us. And one of the most important things that we started to see is that those are all secondary causes and that God himself is sovereign over all of suffering. Sovereign, not in the sense that sometimes we accidentally fall into suffering and then God will work through it. It's not the kind of sovereignty Scripture means. But sovereign in how suffering comes to us. So that nothing that happens in his world is ever outside of his plan. Nothing is ever outside of his control. And so God doesn't simply allow suffering into our lives. Somehow, he fits it into his plan for our lives. Makes it part of his plan for our lives, even though he hates it. Even though he works to eliminate it from his world. Even though he throws himself into the middle of it in order to end it. And I started to suggest there are two very crucial ways that you have to learn to think if you're going to handle suffering well. That God does not hold himself back from the suffering that he's decreed for this world. And at the same time that he's sovereign over all of it. Without once ever becoming unjust. Without ever becoming evil in what he plans. As he uses suffering to advance his plans, his purposes in your life. Now if you're like me. That's not hard to believe when it's clear that you've done something wrong. Then it just makes sense to think, okay, I did wrong, and now God is disciplining me with this kind of suffering so that I learn from this. Those times are relatively easy to make sense of. But when you read Scripture, you come across a lot of places, like with Job, where it's really clear that God is the primary cause behind someone's suffering, and yet that person did not do anything to deserve what they're experiencing. Times when suffering is very real and at the same moment is an absolute mystery. Times when it doesn't look like there's any good reason for it. And that's what we're looking at today. And we're going to approach this by thinking about three things from Psalm 44. First, that there are times in your life when suffering will confuse you. Second, we'll look at what you need to realize in order to resolve that confusion. And then third, how you go about practicing living out that resolution. Okay, three things for today. That suffering will confuse you, what resolves the confusion, and how you live out that resolution. So first, this psalm is extremely practical. By which I mean that it shows you what to do. It gives you a step-by-step -step approach to deal with intense, unjust suffering. And in that sense, you can call it a practical theology of dealing with confusing suffering. In point three, we'll unpack some of those steps briefly. But before then, I want you to feel the tension that's behind the psalm. The tension that requires a step-by-step -step approach to dealing with unjust suffering. And so I'm going to skip over the first part and land us in uh, the middle, verse 9. I want to read this section again, and I want you to keep in mind that the you that's being addressed is God. This whole psalm is directed to him. Verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. 
and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You get the picture here? God has rejected his people. He's not gone out with their armies. They're fighting their enemies on their own, without his power, without his support, and they're losing. Why? Because God made them turn back. He made them retreat. Almost sounds like God is on the side of the enemies. And because of what God has done, they've not only lost the battle they were in, but they were plundered. They were spoiled. Their enemies took some of what belonged to them. And the author is really clear why all of this happened. There are secondary causes. There's this enemy out there. But ultimately, the author does not address the army. He addresses God. He says it's because God did it. God sovereignly ruled his world in such a way that his people suffered harm. Lost a battle, lost their possessions. If you keep reading, they lost even more. Verse 13, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me. Shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. They have suffered. They've been defeated by people who hate them. They've been ripped off. They've been shamed, embarrassed. They're an absolute joke. And the writer lays the responsibility for all of that squarely at God's feet. And having made that assessment, he never pulls back from that position. You know how some of the psalmists do that? You can read psalms like Psalm 73. Psalmist starts out by talking about how miserable life is, how it's all God's fault, but then he kind of has a breakthrough, an epiphany. It's almost like he mentally shakes himself in the middle. He says, wait a minute. I wasn't seeing as clearly as I needed to. I wasn't seeing everything that I needed to see. That was what I was thinking, but now I see things differently. The person who wrote Psalm 44 never says that never pulls himself back, never pulls his thoughts back, never softens his perspective of what God did. And for his part, God never disagrees. Never interrupts the psalmist and says, wait a minute, <laughs> you're out of line here. I had nothing to do with that. That's simply what happens when other people sin. They hate you, they're stronger than you, and so they beat you up. That's just, that, that's the outworking of sin in this world. It's just natural consequences. Sure, I'll get involved, straighten things out, but I didn't bring this on you. That's on them, not me. God doesn't say that. Instead, this psalm gets included in Holy Scripture, gets preserved for hundreds and thousands of years. Think about what that means for a moment. It, mean, it means that God made sure it did. There have been so many things throughout history, artifacts, writings, things that people made or wrote that God did not think were worth preserving. And so they just dissolved into dust over time. Not Psalm 44. It's still with us. Which tells you that in some very real way, God agrees with it and with what you find in it. Jesus never corrects it in any way. You realize he could have if he had thought it was inaccurate. Instead, this psalm accurately expresses God's involvement in his world and in the lives of his people. That behind all the secondary causes, God is responsible for bringing these things to his people that cause them to suffer. Teaches us that he controls and guides the things that enters into the lives of his people. That's hard to swallow. What's even harder is when his people didn't do anything to deserve it. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. 
Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is so comprehensive. Verse 17, they didn't forget God. They didn't ignore him, and they weren't false to his covenant. They didn't disobey him. They didn't commit sins of omission or commission. Verse 18, their heart didn't turn back. Their steps did not depart from his way. Internally, from their heart, they're still oriented toward God. Externally, they're doing what he said to do. Verse 20, they didn't forget God or worship other gods. They did everything right, both inside and out. Both their worship and their actions were lined up on God. They were lined up with God. And they know that God agrees with them. That verse 21, he knows the secrets of the heart. What's he saying there? He's saying the same kind of thing that we saw in Ezekiel 14 a couple months back. That God tells us when our hearts worship other things. God confronts us, convicts us, unsettles our conscience. The author's saying none of that's happened. God would have known if we were false to him. God himself knows that we were not. Instead, these people were innocent. They had no, no, no known sin that they could point to and say, well, yeah, there is this. Okay, that, that makes complete sense then that God would discipline us. He needs to get our attention. That is what he promised in his covenant in Deuteronomy 28, that if we stray from him, there are consequences for disobedience. They didn't say that. Instead, just the opposite. There isn't anything that they can point to that makes sense of this. Instead, their suffering, God is clearly sovereignly behind it, and just as clearly, they didn't do anything to bring it on. That's the tension in the psalm that requires you to have step by step, how do you deal with this? And for some of us, this is kind of a new way to think, that God is this kind of sovereign over suffering, especially when it happens to people who didn't do anything wrong. For some of us, it's a new way to think. For others, it's an uncomfortable way to think. It goes against the way that we're used to thinking. Some of us have been raised in more moralistic or karmic kind of ways of thinking, ways that say to you, if you're suffering, it's because of you. It's because you did something wrong, you're responsible. And that way of thinking filters into a lot of us, deep inside of us. A couple of years ago, I was getting to know one of our renewal families, and at one point we were talking about some of the differences between why Asian and Caucasian people start going to church when they're not yet Christians. And I said, in my limited experience, white people tend to go to church when life isn't working. They just lost a job, their spouse left them, their child's in trouble at school, they caught some incurable disease, some kind of wake-up call that makes them think, huh, Maybe I need some help. Think I'll try going to church. <laughs> the wife of the couple jumped in immediately and said, Oh no, <laughs> we would never. Asians would never start going to church then. Because those kinds of things in your life would mean that you did something wrong, that you're not living right, and you can't go to church then. Let people see that. She's giving voice to this karmic way of life that many of us have been raised in that you get what you deserve. And if bad things are happening to you, it's the clear, obvious sign that you've done something bad, something wrong. And sure, we believe that God stands behind the moral order of the universe, but when you're suffering in this way of thinking, this moralistic way of thinking, how does God rule his world? He just gives you what you deserve, punishes you for what you brought on yourself. And in that sense, this way of thinking turns God into a responder. He is responding to you, either directly or through natural consequences, but he's only acting in response to what you've done. And so ultimately, in this worldview, who's most responsible for the bad things that come your way? You are. It was your actions that brought them on yourself, and you can make them stop anytime you want to. Just start living right. In that sense, it's a system of thinking that does what? It elevates you and your power. It puts you firmly in control of your world. It's a way of thinking that tells you, here's how to get God to work for you, not against you. Stop doing bad things, start doing good things, and God will no longer bring bad things into your life. 
That's an incredibly appealing way to think. That is not at all here in Psalm 44. And yet, it still influences a number of us. Others of us, however, are more influenced by our secular world, by the belief that there is no point to suffering ever, that suffering is the byproduct of random physical events coming together in a way that hurts you, but there's no intention behind it outside the universe. There's no greater purpose, no plan. It's just randomly not good, and in that sense, it's utterly meaningless. But since it's purely created by physical events, individual persons, societal structures, a planet that's convulsing your own body, your own brain chemistry, since it's purely a part of this physical material world with no outside influence or direction, then we can do something about it since it has purely physical causes. We can fix it so that at some point in the future, we will eliminate it. We will master and correct everything that is or could go wrong. There will be no more suffering somewhere in the future. And as that idea has increasingly taken hold of our society over a couple centuries, we've gone from the belief that everyone has the right to the pursuit of happiness to the belief that everyone has the right to be happy. And as I tried to say last week, there are certain elements, certain, there's some certain goodness in some of the way of that way of thinking. What does a secular kind of push do? It, it pushes us past fatalism, pushes us past just accepting suffering that we should not accept. It pushes us to do something to change the things that we can change pushes us to address societal injustice, to make advances in medicine, to do things that contribute to a higher quality of life. There is a goodness in that. But it comes along with a hubris, with this overweening pride that says we can overturn all forms of evil and all forms of suffering, and we do so by virtue of our own moral goodness. That's arrogant. But more than that, it's also ignorant. Ignorant in the sense that if we're going to say that, we just really don't know ourselves very well. All you have to do is casually read through history or pull up this morning's news feed. And you realize that there is no evidence in the human race for believing that we are good enough to eliminate the suffering that you find in this dark world. And yet that mindset, the belief that we should not suffer, sneaks into how many of us approach life. And so when we're faced with suffering, our first thought tends to be, how can I get out of this? What do I need to do to make this end? Instead of, I wonder what God is doing in this. I wonder where he is in this. Learning that God is sovereign over everything reorients us to handling life better when it's hard. So moralism, secularism are two ways of thinking that fight against believing that God is sovereign over suffering when innocents suffer. But there's a third way of thinking, I, I believe, that is also true for many of us. And that is that we feel like saying God is that kind of sovereign, it just kind of makes him sound bad. Like it's damaging to his reputation makes him sound less good than we think he should be. And we can't begin to imagine defending that kind of God to our friends. Our friends who are very aware that bad things and injustice happen to people who did not necessarily do something to deserve it. Our friends who feel like if there is a God who's responsible for any of that, he's just not worth knowing. And I suspect that all of us feel the weight of that critique to a certain extent that we squirm a little when we come to passages like Psalm 44, ones that lay the responsibility for innocent suffering at God's feet. And so we just try to quickly pass over it. And yet, as you read Scripture, this theme just keeps popping up everywhere. Job is easy. You realize he did nothing wrong. He lost his family and his possessions. And his response is to worship, but his response is also to speak theologically. Chapter 1, verse 21, he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or later, when he loses his health, he speaks theologically to his wife 
chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? How's he processing what's happened to him? He recognizes God's hand behind the suffering, thinks that God has had something to do with giving it to him, and Scripture agrees. God agrees. Tells us, chapter 2, verse 11, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, didn't say anything wrong. His way of thinking lined up with how God thinks. This gets repeated at the end of the book, just in case you missed it in the first couple chapters. Job's brothers and sisters come to visit him after all the trials are over, chapter 42, verse 11, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the disaster, listen, that the Lord had brought upon him. Book of Job's very clear. God took away his good things, gave him trouble and disaster instead. And just like in Psalm 44, God agrees with that assessment. Doesn't say, hold up now, you're ruining my reputation here. Instead, he preserves this account in Holy Scripture. Or you flip over to the book of Jonah. Yes, Jonah disobeys God, runs away, and suffers for it. But so do other people who did nothing wrong. Jonah gets on a boat in chapter 1 that's going the opposite direction from where God sent him. And the boat runs into such a violent storm that the soldiers are in distress. Uh, sailors are in distress, excuse me. They're afraid for their lives. They throw their cargo overboard. They are suffering emotionally in that moment. Distress, anxiety over their future. Whoever owns the cargo suffers financially. And God takes responsibility for it. Because we're told in verse 4 that he hurled a great wind upon the sea, a mighty tempest at the exact location where the boat was that threatened to break up the ship. Sailors did nothing wrong, and they suffered because of what God did. Or think about the man in John chapter 9 that we heard about earlier in our liturgy. He was a man who had a serious birth defect. He was born blind. He lived blind into his adult years. And when Jesus' disciples see him, they want to know if he sinned to cause this or if his parents did. You hear them working from within a moralistic worldview, right? They see that here is suffering, and therefore they already have a conclusion, and that is that someone did something bad to cause this. And they're curious because, man, it, it seems kind of odd that an unborn child could do something so bad that God would curse them with blindness, but then that means that it would have to be his parents, which means then that they're saying that God is the kind of God who would curse a child like this for what his parents did, and now they're kind of stuck. None of the answers make sense. You hear how the world's answers to suffering just don't give you helpful tools for dealing with it. They ask this question. Jesus' response is helpful, but it forces us to deal with a God who is sovereign over suffering for his own purposes. And so Jesus tells them, verse 3, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says God wove suffering into this man's life in order to work out his good plan for this man's life, that it was necessary for him, necessary to be blind because of what God was doing on the earth, both in this man's life and through this man's life which is the same thing that Jesus says when his friend Lazarus, a couple chapters over, is so sick that he's about to die. When Jesus hears that, he tells his disciples that this sickness that eventually kills Lazarus is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He says that God is sovereign over this sickness for his own purposes, for his own glory. And that he brings things into the lives of his people, not because they necessarily deserve them, but because it's necessary for what he's doing in the larger world. And that's where Psalm 44 lands as well. Why do innocent people suffer? It's tucked away in verse 22. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. Why do God's people suffer when they've done nothing wrong? It's for his sake. 
It's because he has allowed evil to continue in this world for the present time. We know that God could have destroyed evil, wiped it all out with one single word, but he didn't. Why? He had bigger plans, plans that included you and me. See, if God wiped out evil when it first invaded our world, our first parents would have been destroyed, and you and I would not be here this morning. God thought that the glory of a future world populated with human beings, with you and me, a world that shows the glory of his mercy and grace to us was better than a world without us. Which means that in his mind, that the future world that he's thinking about is so great that it's worth the cost of having a present one where evil fights with him. That in some important way, when God decides not to wipe out evil, he's the one who suffers most. Suffers in the sense that he now has to deal with the presence and activity of evil that fights against him, that ruins his creation. And he would rather pay the cost in that way than wipe everything out. In that sense, he accepts that suffering is necessary to bring about a better future than you and I can imagine. Now join yourself to him. Be loyal to him. Take his side, embrace his approach to life, and you will also suffer in this world. Because you'll suffer for his sake. You'll suffer for the things that he thinks are bringing great glory and, and goodness to this earth. You will pay for some of that cost. Derek Kidner puts it this way in his commentary. He says, this is the price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. All of that means what? That this is either true of you now, or it will be true of you at some point. It means that suffering for God's sake is not a one-off kind of thing that happened to some ancient people safely far removed from you. Instead, if it happened to them because of their connection to God, then your connection to God guarantees you the same thing. And that's why the Apostle Paul takes Psalm 44, verse 22, and he quotes it in the middle of Romans 8. He's just been talking about all the hardships that Christians face, and he lists things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and then he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Brothers and sisters, this is already true of you as well. Or it will be true of you at some point. That for God's sake, for his plans and purposes, for his glory, for the destruction of suffering, you and I are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For his sake, you and I will face suffering that we don't deserve. It's not a popular idea in some corners of the church, but it is part of following Christ. It is something that he absolutely promised his followers. In Mark 8, he was teaching his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said that he is not only sovereign over suffering, but that he personally embraces suffering as the means by which he accomplishes his mission. And then he looks at his disciples, and he says to them, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See the parallel here? He accomplishes his mission to destroy suffering by embracing suffering that he didn't deserve, and then he invites each of us to follow him, to get ready to suffer as well for his sake and for the sake of what he's doing. That's point one, the, a glimpse into the mystery of suffering, the kind of suffering that will confuse you if you don't see what God is doing. Points two and three very briefly this morning. Point two, resolving the confusion. Most of the time when people suffer, the the question that they ask is what? It, it, it's why. 
Why is this happening? Even more to the point, why is this happening to me? And part of that makes sense, given who we are as human beings. We are meaning makers. We long to understand. We long to make sense out of our world. But as we studied this winter, we're also prone to idolatry, to taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. And so there are many times when we ask why, because we find reasons to be of incredible comfort. We find them stabilizing. We find them grounding. And we feel that if we could just understand, if we could just know why we're going through something, then we don't feel so out of control, and now we can do something about it. And so we look for information, we look for rational explanations to provide that sense of security for us. That information and explanation then becomes our God. That's where we find a place where our hearts can rest. And that can be a real trap. Because asking why is a question you, you almost never get a satisfying answer to. There is hardly anybody who says, oh, I understand right now why I'm suffering. I can see that God in this moment is doing X, Y, and Z in my life. Almost no one has that kind of insight into the purposes of God while you're going through suffering. There are times when it's possible to reflect backward after you've suffered and to say something like, now I see that God was at work in me at that time using what I was suffering to produce A, B, and C in my life. But think about it. Does understanding that now change what you experienced, change how you grew then? Yes, in hindsight, you can see some of the reasons, maybe, maybe some of what God was up to. But when you didn't know those things, did that keep God from working in your life? Or did he still produce A, B, and C in your life? Was it essential for you to know what he was doing in order for him to be at work? Did you, know, did you need to know the reasons? You realize clearly not. God accomplished what he needed to, whether you saw it or not. And if it's true that you didn't fully see those three things, A, B, and C, in the moment while you were suffering, isn't it possible that there are other things, D, E, F, that he was doing that you still don't see, even now? In other words, just because I don't see good reasons for what I'm going through doesn't mean that there aren't any good reasons for going through it. What it means is that I'm not big enough and I'm not smart enough to know what those reasons are. And that is so important to get hold of. Because people look at the suffering and injustice all around them and they say things like, I could never believe in a God who would let those kind of things happen. Well, what are they saying? They're saying that they don't see a good reason for those things to happen. And if they can't see a good reason, their assumption is a good reason does not exist. But if I have a God who's big enough to be sovereign over all things then I have a God who's big enough to have reasons for what he does that I'm not big enough to understand. Reasons that I could not understand while I was suffering, reasons that I don't fully understand now, reasons that I might never understand, not even in eternity. So to insist on understanding everything that happens to me now as the condition of whether or not I'm going to trust this God who runs the universe, what is that doing? That's idolizing my understanding. It's valuing information and reasons more than I value a God who loves me. It's me finding security and certainty in answers that I find personally compelling rather than finding security in a God who signs himself up to suffer in order to put an end to suffering. And that's why as you read Psalm 44, you realize the psalmist never asks information questions. Never asks why. Why is this happening to me? Instead, he asks God relational questions. Verse 23, why are you sleeping? Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? He's not looking for reasons. What's he looking for? He's looking for a relationship. 
This is where Psalm 44 diverges from fatalism. The author doesn't say, oh, well, I, I guess God's got reasons of his own for this. There's nothing I can do about it. I'll probably never understand. I need to just keep quiet, just suck it up and deal with it. It's not what he says. He's not fatalistic. But he doesn't find his hope, doesn't find his security in some kind of abstract philosophical reason. He allows his suffering to drive him into God, finds his security in a relationship. It's a relationship that God invites. See, that's why this psalm is here. It's God's invitation to you. It's his invitation to you that when you don't understand the suffering that you're going through, don't act like an atheist. Don't try to solve it outside of a connection with him. Instead, come to him. Pour out your complaint to him. Tell him what you're experiencing. Tell him how you feel about that. <laughs> Tell him how you feel like he's asleep on you, that he's hiding from you, that he's forgotten you. It's an invitation to you to get gut-level honest with him about how you feel like he's abandoned you. You know what happened when the psalmist wrote that? Labored over it, got all of the poetry just right? expressed himself as clearly as he possibly could. You know what happened? God heard that. God listened. And God said, that's good. That's really good. That's exactly what I want to hear from you when you feel like that. In fact, that's what I want to hear from all of my people who suffer for my sake when it doesn't make any sense to them. And my people need to learn how to say that. So I want you to do this. I want you to write that down. And I'm going to make sure that it becomes part of the songbook that my people use to sing to me in worship. Because on the Sabbath, I want to hear my people come into my presence saying, Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? That's what I want to hear from them. And I'm going to make sure that those words then are preserved for thousands of years. Because if you're struggling with the way that I run the world, I want to hear that from you. You cannot read this psalm without hearing God's invitation. Without hearing that he wants to hear from you in the middle of hard times that he's responsible for bringing. That is the only way that you will resolve the confusion of suffering, point two. Not by looking for reasons to give you security and stability, but by finding your confidence in a real connection with the living God. Not in abstract reasons, but in a close relationship. So point three, how do you do this? And this is really important because all the theory and all the ways of thinking through things that we've talked about this morning, all of that will do you absolutely no good if you don't practice it. And you need to be careful because some of you right now are probably thinking, oh, <laughs> he's going to tell us that we need to pray. I was really hoping for some real help. If you're thinking something like that, and I've heard those things before, it's probably because what you mean by pray is not the same thing that God means. When someone says, I don't want someone to just tell me to pray, what, what do they have in mind? They're thinking that prayer is just pretty much, you know, a quick shout for help. Something like, dear God, I'm not happy with life right now. Please fix this. Amen. And when nothing happens, they start looking for something else to give them some sense of comfort or security, or they pick up their phone to distract themselves from the things they don't like. That's not really prayer. That's wishful thinking. What God is looking for is completely different. He's looking for a relationship, a real vibrant connection with you that transforms you, that provides resources for you inside to deal with everything that's going on. Now, how do you get that? The next time you're going through something really hard that you didn't cause, Grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 44 and use this outline as a way to relate to God. There are steps here for you to work through. 
It's a way for you to connect with him in the middle of what you're going through. What are the steps? Notice that the psalmist does not start off with what upsets him. Instead, verses 1 to 3, step 1, he remembers all the amazing things that God did for his people in the past. How God brought his people into a good land and fought for them, not against them. Why? Because, verse 3, he delighted in them. He loved them. And so the psalmist starts this whole complaint by reminding himself of who God is based on what God has told us in Scripture. That's step one. Don't skip step one. Step two, psalmist shifts his focus, verses 4 to 8, and reflects on his own life, remembers all of the things that he's experienced personally from this same God. Draws a line from the past to the present, from what God did for his people back then to what God does for us now. That's step two. Then, as we've seen, step three, he talks to God about all the ways that he's suffering, verses 9 to 16. He does so in ways that are fairly exhaustive. Then step four, before asking for help, he talks about how he has a clean conscience, verses 17 to 21. That's part of relating to God. That there are times when you don't need to ask God's forgiveness because as far as you know, you haven't done anything wrong. This means that the author probably had to do some soul searching to get to this point. That's another part of knowing this God. We read that with the call to worship in Psalm 51. It's making sure that his conscience is really clean, that he wasn't just fooling himself. And then finally, step five, verses 23 to 26, he makes his request. Asks for help from this God who has loved his people in the past, who has loved him personally. And this author bases that request on what? On his own goodness, his own faithfulness? No, verse 26, he says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love, for the sake of your covenant-keeping love. He says, God, you've delighted in your people before. You've delighted in me. I'm asking that you rescue me from the things you've brought on me because I know that you still delight in me. I know that I've not lost your love. These things are not because you hate me. I've not lost your love because you're the one who decided to love me in the first place. If you want to handle suffering well, you need to go through these same five things. Remind yourself of what God has done in the past because those things show you his love for his people. Remind yourself of what he's done for you personally, of where you've seen his love for you. Tell him honestly about the things that are upsetting to you. Do some soul searching. And then ask for his help. Not because of your commitment to him, but because of his commitment to you. Those five things are not magical. They're not automatically going to make suffering go away. What they will do is connect you to the God who loves you and who oversees all the events of your life out of his great love for you. And when you struggle to believe that, remember Jesus, the one who was perfectly faithful to God and to his covenant. You and I struggle to say things like, we've not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. We struggle because we can think of lots of times where we have forgotten God. Times where we've broken his covenant, times when we've turned away. Jesus couldn't. He didn't have any memories of anything like that. When he searched his heart, there was never any hint of forgetting God, of turning away from God. Not a moment of breaking God's covenant. He could sing this entire psalm without his conscience once saying, hold up. That's not entirely true. He was perfectly faithful to God, and when Jesus' enemies came out to him, God did not go out with Jesus to meet them. Instead, Jesus was captured by his enemies, overpowered, defeated by them. What few possessions he had were plundered. His clothes were taken from him, gambled away. His reputation was destroyed. While he hung on the cross, his enemies mocked him. They taunted him. They said, Matthew 27, he trusts in God. <laughs> Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. You hear their theology working itself out, right? Hey, Jesus, bad things don't happen to good people. God doesn't let them. If God loves you, he'll put a stop to all this. 
That's their taunt. Which does make you ask, why didn't God rescue him? Why did God reject his son? Why did God make him like a sheep for slaughter? Why make him the taunt, the ridicule of his neighbors? Why did he delight in his son from all eternity? This one who was perfectly loyal to him, but then in this moment, hide his face from him. The answer is found in one of the things the, his tormentors threw at him. They mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They didn't know it at the time, but there's a riddle there. Because Jesus could have saved himself. Scripture is clear that he let himself be arrested, tortured, crucified. That he hung there until he was ready to give up his last breath. That his life was not taken from him, but that he laid it down. He could have saved himself at any time, but he only could do that at the cost of not being able to save you. It was by not saving himself that he could save you. He stayed there to trade places with you. He had already lived the life that you should have lived. He was perfectly faithful to God. But he needed yet to die the death that you should have died. And so on that Friday afternoon, it was him or you. And he chose you. He remained perfectly faithful to you because you had not been faithful to him. And so he embraced a life of undeserved suffering to ensure that one day you would never get the suffering that you deserve. He redeemed you by the most unjust, undeserved suffering imaginable because he loved you with an undying love. He died before his love died. Everything else then that he brings into your life comes from that same heart, that same love for you. That's a God you want to spend time with, a God you want to get to know and be loved by even when he brings things into your life that you don't understand. Lord God, give us greater confidence in you than we have confidence in being able to sort this life out on our own. Lord, let us see how much you've loved us. Let that be the beginning and the end of our prayer. Let that shape and guide how we handle all the things that you do bring into our lives. Lord, let us know that there is not a single thing that you allow that you bring into our lives that is not absolutely necessary for an incredible, glorious plan. Remind us that you have taken the first and the biggest portion of that suffering in order to rescue us. Give us trust, confidence that having done that, Lord, you'll give us everything that we need, especially a heart that loves you in return. In Jesus' name, amen.